following message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. With you this morning, open at Matthew chapter 5. Sometimes, and I used to say that, I used to say to people, you know, bring your Bible to church because you must bring a sword if you go into a fight. That's a very bad illustration, you know, because when you're going to church, you're not going to a fight. You're not even going to a battle. The battle's won. Praise God. This isn't the battle. You know what this is? This is the victory parade. But soldiers even bring their swords to victory parades too, you know. Praise the Lord. Matthew 5, a couple of verses. You know this very well. And uh, this verse speaks about the light of the world. We have a little... uh, that's it, yeah, God's heavenly vision. That's the title for our message this morning. Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He just turned to the person beside you and said, you are the light of the world. Good to read God's word, even better to believe it. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, two words there jumped out at me. The words, your Father. And more and more, those are the words that are always coming and uh, jumping off the page for me. I see any other religion in the world can say, glorify your God. Only Christians can say, we glorify our Father. Oh, yeah, that's the difference, you see. I think I remember telling you a few weeks ago, I looked up on the internet, uh, what do Muslims call God? And the, the one quote said, we have over 90 names for God, but none of them is Father. That's the privilege we have. Very, very simple thing. If you want to know how someone grasps or is someone grasping the gospel, look and see, are they living as if God is their Father? That's the fundamental thing of the gospel. Sometimes truths, you see, can be so obvious, so fundamental, that we don't see them anymore. It's a bit like the building you're in. You know, sometimes there's some things which are so fundamental, so huge, we don't even see them anymore. Like this week in this city, almost everybody in this city will think of or speak or write the phrase 2017. How many will actually stop and think 2017 years since what? Why is it 2017? Why is it 2017? Why are we about to enter 2008? Even the very date that people write on their check (laughs) proclaims the gospel. It's so huge. It's so big. And yet sometimes it's hidden in plain sight. And I think of that about the truth of the fatherhood of God. It's a living reality for all those who are born of him. And often in the scriptures it's hidden in plain sight. I remember once speaking on Matthew, Matthew 5 where it says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you remember what Jesus was talking about? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I know like me, perhaps many of you for years, when you read that sort of scripture, all we could think of was, oh God, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect. I must be perfect, I must be perfect. Lord, help me try harder to be perfect. We completely missed two little words. Your Father. Your Father. Nobody becomes a son of mine by trying to be a son of mine. I have sons who are born of me. 
It's the same for a Christian. Nobody becomes a Christian by trying to be a Christian. Christians are those who are born of God, born of God's Holy Spirit. Praise God. That deposit that we receive, the very Spirit of God in our spirits, uh, it's so simple, but that deposit is stronger than natural DNA. Surely, what is of the last Adam is stronger than what is of the first Adam. So how can we let our lives be defined by our history, our culture, our past, in the natural? Surely the most powerful thing in our lives is the very Spirit of God who witnesses with your spirit and my spirit that we are the children of God. That is the most powerful. And so the work of the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of God, the very life of God has a powerful effect in our life and is changing us. So as my children grew up and, uh, you know, they look more and more like me. God help them. They do. And there's nothing they can do about it. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> because they have my DNA. Now, is the Holy Spirit not stronger than natural DNA? Let your light shine. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let the Holy Spirit's voice be the voice that you listen to. You know? These things are already there. And we're allowing and learning to allow them to be our life. So how important do you think it is to the Holy Spirit that believers <clears throat> live as if God is their Father? How important? I would say it's so important that the Holy Spirit would actually write it as the opening proclamation of every book of the New Testament. Do you know what? Every letter that the Apostle Paul wrote began with the same phrase. It's absolutely astonishing. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon all have the same phrase in the opening verses. It's so important. It's there in plain sight. It's so Ubiquitous, we don't even see it. Praise God. But you know what it is. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There in three little words, God our Father is the fundamental truth that Jesus came to proclaim. That he said, you know what, I'm here to reveal the Father. And John said, you know, he did it so well. It's as if we never saw the Father before he came. Jesus said to Philip, don't you know yet? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God our Father. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. <clears throat> and that's where grace and peace comes from. It's multiplied to you and I by the knowledge of God. What knowledge of God? The knowledge of God as our Father. For all those who are born of him. And that's how being born again happens, by that proclamation of who God is. And so because of that, because the sort of life, we know the sort of life every person lives is really from what they have believed. And so the sort of life that you and I are living this morning is fundamentally down to what you have believed. So when tragedy afflicts us and tragedy will affect each one of us in this life, Jesus said very clearly, you will have trouble in this life. But how I live how I respond to that trouble will reveal what I have really believed. That's why in the midst of trouble, we're shocked by the things that pop out of our mouth. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if the quality of life 
is determined by what somebody believes, then I have to make this statement this morning that the highest quality of life there is is the life of a person who believes that God is their father. That's revolutionary. That's the message of the gospel. Everywhere, people out there are looking for the high life. That's what they're doing. They're looking for the high life. They're looking for a life of peace and joy and provision. You know, and I, I got to make more money. I got to work harder. I got to keep in with this person. I got to keep in with that person. Why? Well, we're looking for the high life. There's no higher life than believing that God is your Father. And that's what the Holy Spirit is ministering. Praise God to believers. When Jesus said then to his disciples, Let your light shine before men, this is the light or the revelation that he was speaking of. We are to live the sort of lives that can only be lived by people who believe God to be their Father. And in light of those sorts of lives, people will begin to see God as Father. That's where we've been placed in this community, as a light. The light of heaven is shining through our lives. The revelation of what Christ has done, the revelation of God as Father, that people can live as if God's their Father. You know when you have a very rich Father, you live a different way. When you have a very powerful father, you live a different way. I've, I've said this many times to you, how I met public school boys and girls in England when I first went to college, and they just lived a different way, you know. They lived as if they owned the country, and they do. <laughs> they're, so, they're totally persuaded, you know. They're totally persuaded, and they live so generous, so relaxed, you know. Praise God. And uh, yet me and all my insecurities, I was trying so hard to be like them because I didn't know my father. I didn't know that my father was much stronger than theirs. <laughs> So this revelation, the truth of the fatherhood of God, if it's true that that's our light, then really in every generation the church can only shine brightly according to the revelation it's living in and according to whether it's living in this revelation or not, the fatherhood of God, that we are in union with God through the Son, that we are children of the living God. That's the light of the church. And to the degree you and I are living in that, living from that truth or not, that's the degree to which the church is shining. That's the degree to which the church is a light. In your family and my family, we've been placed there as a light that others would come into the light. You know, that wonderful verse in Matthew, Behold, those who've been sat in darkness for a long time have seen a great light. Church, you are the great light because the great light has been placed in you. Christ, the life of Christ, the life of God, the revelation of God. In the light of that revelation, you cannot be the same. We cannot live the same. So we can see from Paul's letters that if something is very, very important, you put it at the very start. You put it at the very start. First impressions are important, aren't they? Here's an interesting thing. If you go to the website of the Apostolic Church and you click on it, <clears throat> immediately there's a statement that comes up, a very short sentence it's the first thing you see. And I love that, the fact that it's the first thing you see. And it actually says this. A church established to honor Jesus as head of the church. A church established to honor Jesus as head of the church. The reason I love that statement is because implicit in that statement is the union of Christ with his church. The head and the body. <laughs> What's the closest thing to your head? I'm looking around, I don't see any headless bodies or any bodiless heads, praise God. So in that statement is the truth, the highest truth there is, that we can be in God, with God, connected to God through his Son. That Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. 
And so for us to honor Jesus as the head of the church, we have to live in that connection. We have to live connected to the head. That's why, as Brian was saying at communion this morning, that we have to be able to know that as believers, we can hear and speak the very words of the head. We can have the mind of Christ, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that we can speak what God says. You know, when you speak what Jesus is saying, things change. Things change. When God speaks, things always change. You know, as I go on in life, I want what I say to be less and less of Phelan, more and more of Christ of the Spirit of God. Because I know when He speaks through me, things change. Things change. Praise God. When God said, let there be, there was light. And that's what He says. He says, let be. Let light come. I love that sentence, praise God. A church established to honor Jesus as head of the church. This truth that everyone born of God is connected to God as a son is to a father, as a head is to a body, Paul thought it was important enough to put at the very start of all his letters. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe he thought that because it was the very first revelation he ever got. It was the very first thing he ever heard Jesus say to him. When he was Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he heard a voice say this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And that was such a revelation to him, it blew his mind. In fact, he went blind. He couldn't take it in. He, it's almost like, you know, when you go blind physically, it's like you lose sight of this earth. Such a revelation that will make you lose sight of this earth. That's what the gospel is. It's such a revelation that you cannot see this earth the same way again. It's an eye-opening, an eye-changing experience. And God is opening our eyes to see things totally different. Because all the way through the Bible, when God spoke to people, He never addressed them or spoke to them according to who they were in the flesh. All the way through, you know, from Joshua, Gideon, Moses, Abraham, you and I, always, even to Joshua, I remember that lovely verse where He said to Joshua outside the walls of Jericho, Now, Joshua, see, see, I have given Jericho and all its fighting men into your hands. Can you see? You see, he asks us to see before we'll do anything. Because he doesn't want us to do it. He says, I'll do it through you if you see. Can you see first that I've done it? You see, with Christianity, he gives us first the victory. And then he says, can you see? Can you see to have the victory? Now from there, from there, from there, not to there, from there, you can live in victory. When you see. It's amazing. Peers to Gideon, a coward hiding in a wine press, and says, Arise! I see a mighty warrior. What do you see, Gideon? <laughs> and Gideon had what what but 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 and that's our life, the life of a Christian. You know, we're getting rid of the butts. Praise the Lord. We're giving up smoking. No more butts. No more butts. We're beginning to see ourselves the way God sees us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see blows our minds. Praise God. It's God's glorious vision, his heavenly vision of the church. If he is the head and we are the body, you can't get more connected than that. And so that truth is just amazing. The greatest vision Christians can have of themselves is God's vision of them. To really start to see that, you know, means that you're filled with good news. You have such good news for this world. Because to see what God sees is the most incredible, astonishing thing, you know. 
The greatest visions Christians can have of themselves is God's vision of them. You know, when we go into the shops, I guess, for Christmas, you know, we'll be thinking about gifts and what could I get the person who has everything? <laughs> what can I get? You know, what, what can I do or give somebody that communicates love? You know, people sometimes buy stuff to try and improve their vision of themselves, you know. Do I look good in this? <laughs> you know, do I buy this car, I'll live in that house, I'll get that job, I'll marry that person. You see, there is no higher vision somebody can get than God's vision of them, that they are worth dying for, that they're worth the whole of heaven. That's amazing. And we have that vision for people. But I can't communicate that to you with authority if I have not received it myself. As you received him, so walk in him. And so the Holy Spirit, judgment starts at the house of God. In this season, the Holy Spirit is convincing, is persuading Christians that they really are children of the living God. That they may be so persuaded that they look at this world in a different way. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So this vision that God has of us is the greatest vision a church or a people can have, Christians can have. Now very often in church, when we talk about vision, we talk about other things. When a church has a vision or a vision statement, it's normally about what they're going to do for God. Well, we have a great vision here, folks. We're going to build a big church, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. You know, that's great. It's great to have plans. I'm excited about our plans. But that's not the greatest vision God's ever given me. The greatest vision God's ever given us is his vision of who we now are in Christ, not what we will be one day. If you live and your greatest vision in your life is what you will be one day, you live a stillborn life. Because you're never living in the day. You're always waiting for the day. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. You're not then able to live in the fullness of the day that you're actually in. The day of being in Christ today. The day of having God as your Father today. Not someday in the by and by. Today. God says to Christians, stop living in the by and by. Say bye-bye to the by and by. Start living in the day. Why? Because this community is waiting to look at a people who believe that God is their Father. What does it look like to see a people who believe that God is their Father? Praise God. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. There is only one vision that lights up a life with the light of God, and it's not a vision of the great things we may or may not do for God. It's the vision of what God has done for us, in us, and through us, through Christ. He has made us to be sons of God. He has made us to be sons of God. That's called the heavenly vision. It's called the heavenly vision. The old apostolics used to talk about the heavenly vision. Although we talk about Ephesians 4, that we believe as a church that today there are ascension ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, that is not the vision of the apostolic church. The vision of the church really is union. Those ministries are given that men would grow up into the head, that they actually would all grow up into one life. You see? So it's actually a vision of union. A heavenly vision that God has of his church is that I am the head and you're my body. Wow. That's connected. See, that's his life. His life is always a connected life. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you, you're not going to divide them. <laughs> you're not going to get Jesus to fall out with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is never going to say something the Father doesn't say. They are one. They are one. Now, that's the sort of life, the Lord says, that I give to you. A life of union. A life of being one. Praise God. The highest vision that a man or woman can live by is God's vision of them. For the highest life any person can live is to live believing that God is their Father. Now, when we see that vision, astonishing things happen. When you realize that you do not have to cajole 
God or beg God or force God's arm up his back to be good to you. When you know that he is your father and that, as Nicholas said this morning, he's never late. He's never late. Then whatever day you're in, you can be content in that day because whatever's happening to you does not change what he has done in and through his son for you. It doesn't change the fact that if you're a believer, he's your father and he is never late. He's never late. It's good to say that. Turn to the person beside you and say, God is never late. Only when his vision of us becomes our vision of ourselves can we begin to shine like we've never shone before. And I believe that the world cannot see they're living in darkness. They cannot see that they're living in separation unless the church begins to live in the light of her union with Christ. You see, how are you supposed to know what darkness is if you've never seen the light? How are you supposed to know what separation is if you've never seen togetherness? And so I believe that's why the Lord in this hour is bringing together such a revelation of union that we as brothers and sisters would live such a close life together that people would say, Kathy, I thought that we were your family, but I see you've got a new family. And you're very close with that family. You're living with this family as if you're, you're brothers or sisters. How does that happen? It's because we all have the same father. That's how it happens. It's the revelation of the fatherhood of God that brings such a union into the body between brothers and sisters that Jesus said this, when they see the love you have one for another, then they'll believe. Then they'll know that you are my disciples. So if God wants this world to see the light of sonship in our lives in the church, what exactly will that look like to the world? What does someone look like who's been persuaded that God is their father? What does it look like to become persuaded that because God is your father, a father who owns everything, that everything is your inheritance, that you have all things that you will ever need? What does that look like? What does it look like to have become persuaded that the king of kings is your father and that you are now royalty, praise God, and that you have the privileges of royalty? How does a person's behavior change if they come to believe that they don't have to live anymore totally focused on saving themselves, on making money, because they believe now that they'll always have what they need in the day they need it, because their father is the king of kings and owns the whole world. What does that look like, to live like that? I could say very simply it looks like Jesus, doesn't it? Remember when Jesus sat at the head of 40 days in the desert when he had nothing? And he was hungry and tired. And he must have been very, very hungry. And the devil came along and said, well, now is the time to prove it. Go on then. If you're the son of God, why don't you prove it? And Jesus said, I don't have to prove anything. Because I know. I know who I am. And you and I don't have to prove a thing to anybody when we know who we are. And the things we do won't be because we're trying to prove that we're good Christians. Because we don't have to prove it to anybody least of all ourselves, because we know that we know that we know that the Holy Spirit is in us and he's witnessing to us and per persuading us absolutely that we are with God, that we are in God, that God is our Father. What does it look like for people to be persuaded of that? Well, I want to finish this morning by giving you a picture of what that looks like. It's a picture that we've used before, but we haven't actually looked at it before. So just turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 7. Although I've said this before, Paul wrote once to the Philippians, It is no trouble for me to repeat these things to you again, for it is a safeguard for you. So 2 Kings 7 
is the story of the siege of Samaria. <clears throat> and just very briefly, you know that the people of God, as it were, <clears throat> uh, people of Israel, were trapped in a city that was under siege from an army, the Syrians. And things had got so bad in that city that people were eating dogs and cats or what they were even eating each other. I mean, when I think in the Bible, where could I go to find the biggest contrast in the Bible between absolute and utter despair and absolute delight? I always go to 2 Kings 7. I don't know another place where in one day things are so turned around is absolutely unbelievable. From the worst to the best in one day. The worst was... And in fact, we know even in this city, it was a city under siege. And if you go to the, the, the city hall there, there's a, there's a book there where they've still got, where people wrote down how much it was to buy a dog to eat. Isn't that right? And uh, funny, I was, in, um, I was in Joe's flat uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was showing me that under his flat, which is inside the old city walls, there's tunnels, you know, there's tunnels all over the city where people dug down to try and find something to eat, you know. So this city described here, um, in Samaria, where things were so bad, people were actually eating each other. And then God spoke through the prophet. And this is Second Kings 7, and this is what he said. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, at about this time, a seth of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seths of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now what he's just said was, I know that nobody can get any but a barley for love or money right now. But by tomorrow, it's going to be as cheap as chips. It's going to be so plentiful. There's going to be so much of it, you'll be giving it away. Do you know that the gospel of grace sounds like that to the religious mindset? For here comes the reply of the soldier. An officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, well, in fact, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. We know perhaps with that man, what happened with him, he was, he was killed in the crush as people ran out of the city gate, you know. But really, speaking about unbelief, un with unbelief, you will not eat, you will not partake, really, of the richness of what has been provided by God. You will not eat of it. But that's a common response to the enormity of what God has done. It's so hard to take in. I thought of that phrase, the windows of heaven. Do you know that God has opened the windows of heaven? That's why it's called the good news. Now, you and I can have as much as you can believe for. And that's why I want my capacity to believe to increase. When I say as much, I'm talking about revelation. I want to know him. Paul wrote, I press on. I count everything as rubbish that I may know him. I thought of uh, Lorraine, you talked about looking for a window seat in the plane. God has given you a window into heaven. And all of heaven has been given to us. And we, in fact, in living as if all of heaven has been given to us, we become the windows through which the light shines. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. You know, in a lot of churches, you have these what are they, stained glass windows, you know, and uh, they look lovely. But when the light shines through them, they look supernatural. Wow. When the light of the revelation that God is our Father begins to shine through people who've been going to church for years but never really believed that God was their Father, the world will think, wow, that's beautiful. The gospel was declaring, and the gospel is declared right through the Old Testament. This is a picture of the gospel, that God is going to do something in one day that would be as if heaven had been opened. 
and the riches of heaven were freely given to man. That's what that picture is about. Now read on. Look at verse 3. There are the gates. <clears throat> it says there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we'll enter the city, well, the famine's in the city and we'll die there. And if we say we'll sit here, we'll die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die. In other words, we're going to die anyway. Here is the gospel again. You see, no man can receive the riches until he gets to the place of being convinced that his own piety is not going to save him, that there's nothing he can do of himself. And this society we're living in, they're not going to save us either, and they don't have the answer. These four lepers decided, we're going to go to the king of the Syrians. We had a revelation. We're going to go to the king of the Jews. Praise God. He's the one who has life. We're going to go to him and receive life. These lep leprosy was always a picture in the Bible of sin. You know, this, this disease that had eaten away at, the, at, at what the beauty that God had made. And here are these leprous men dressed in rags, and they come to a revelation. And you know, for the gospel of grace to be received, you and I have to come to a revelation that the beggarly elements of the law have only dressed us in the rags of self-righteousness. You need to see your self-righteousness as filthy rags. You need to see yourself as starving to death at the gates of heaven, because you will not receive the King of heaven and all that God has done. And so that revelation, that self-righteousness religion does nothing for us except robe us in our own pride or in our own despair. When you see that, you're able to go up and say, I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to go to the King of Kings. So these guys, they get up and they start walking. And look what happens next, verse 5. And I read this, you know, and as I read this again this morning, God really spoke to me. It says, they rose at twilight. Oh, is it possible that the church is rising at twilight? Right at the very end of the age, the church is rising up to discover the enormity of the victory that's just sitting there, waiting to be received. They rose at twilight. They go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. Woo! That's a good surprise. Folks, to all those who are still fighting the devil, to your surprise, he's been beaten. Praise the Lord. He's no longer there. His lies are there. His lies leave a residue. But he is beaten. He is beaten. What a surprise. He's no longer there. That enemy that's coming against you, he was defeated at the cross. He doesn't have any power over you except the lies that you believe. If you will not believe that victory has been won for you, then you are left almost living before the victory. But we're not to be people who live before the victory. We're people who are coming from a victory. We're not going to a victory. We're coming from a victory. I love that phrase when I read that this morning, uh, that they went around the camps. And look at this. It says, uh, The Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots, the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. And they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired us uh, hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and they fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents and their horses and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. That's interesting. They fled at twilight. I didn't see that before. If they fled at twilight and the lepers arrived at twilight, that's pretty good timing, isn't it? God's never late, is he? And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and they ate and they drank, 
and they carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and then they went and hid them, and then they came back and they entered in another tent, and they carried some from there also, and they went and hid them. They were going from tent to tent. When I read that this morning, I thought of that phrase we use here. We are only scratching the surface here of the goodness of God. We're just in the outside tents, folks. You know, we're helping ourselves to some of this goodness of the gospel. We're only in the outside tents. There's a lot more tents. There's a lot more revelation for God to show us. We're just going in the outside tents. We haven't really entered into the fullness of what God has for us. But he's encouraging us to come more, come deeper, you know. So these guys, they were going from tent to tent, and they were helping themselves, and they were filling their pockets, going off and hiding it and coming back again. And then finally, they said to themselves in verse 9, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. What do we call the good news? The gospel. This is the day. This is the day. We're not waiting for a better day. This is the day, folks. This is the day of good news. And we're not doing right if we remain silent. If we wait here until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and they called to the gatekeepers of this king's household, the gatekeepers of the city. And they said to them, we went to the Syrian camp. And surprisingly, no one was there. <laughs> this is wonderful. This is called the good news. We can go to people and say, you know all that stuff that you're believing, that God's against you, you know, and, and that you've got terrible, you've got to work really hard for the rest of your life to get holy enough to get God to bless you. We've got some good news. We've been to the camp. The victory's over. It's been won. God's not against you. He's for you. This is surprising to many people. And they said, listen, there was not a human sound there, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. You see, so these Lepers, they went back and forth helping themselves. Grasp some riches. Go and hide that. Grasp some more. Or go and hide that. Grasp. Now they kept grasping until something struck them. My God, I must be the richest man in the whole world by now. And the moment that revelation hit them, they stopped grasping. And they began to carry the good news. And church, that's what's happening. As you're sitting under the message of how rich you are in God in the presence of God in you. And as people hear that message out there of how rich God is towards them, there will come a moment when they'll stop grasping. They'll stop grasping. That's all sin is. It's a grasping in the dark. When you know that God is your Father and He is well provided for you, you will not have to speak against anyone. You will keep your mouth shut and say, Lord, it's in your hands. You don't have to speak against your family or elbow or push or grasp or put people down or put yourself forward or try and build yourself up. You will simply stand silent because God is your vindicator and God is your victory. And you will know that you will have what you need in the hour that you need it. And if you don't have it, it's because you didn't need it. Because God's will is much, much greater than what you thought God's will was for your life. The way that you will make a life for yourself is nothing compared to the life that God has given you. And so that's what's happening, really, by the proclamation of the gospel, by the revelation of how blessed we are to have God as our Father. Grasping, sin is being purged. The leaven is being purged. I'm not grasping as much as I used to grasp. Praise the Lord. That's a good testimony. And what is doing that is not my efforts. It's revelation. That's why Jesus said to Peter, I'll tell you how I'll build my church. By revelation. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, who I am. But God in heaven, the Father, revealed that to you. Revelation from the Father is what purges the church of sin. Revelation from the Father. That's what manifests in our life. 
So, you see, the world out there need to see the reality of this. They need to see church living as one. They need to see us loving each other. They, they do, you know. And I just thank God that I see that when I look at people in the church and the way you miss each other and love each other. I think that's so beautiful, you know. People need to see that. If you go out in Diary Street now and ask people, why don't you go to church? Oh, don't talk to me about those Christians. Let me tell you about one of those guys, you know. Blah, 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 blah. What are they talking about? They're grieved because their hopes were up. They really thought they'd see love. They really thought they'd see union, and they didn't see it. But they will see it, praise God. They'll see what we see if we see it first, and we are seeing it first. The gospel of God's grace is so extravagant that it's like finding laid out before you the riches of a kingdom that somebody else has won. Isn't that beautiful? The kings of separation, sin and death, have been beaten. And we now have laid out before us the riches of the kingdom of heaven. And I want to finish by saying this. As far as the grace of God, the kingdom of God is concerned, God has laid out such an extravagant, generous measure to us that each of us can have as much of the grace of God as we have the capacity to carry. Or as Jesus would say, be it done unto your core and to your faith. Who do you say that I am? And what that means is, and please, I've said this many times, don't say to me, you need more faith. I can't produce faith. Tell me the gospel. You give me more gospel and I'll show you more faith. That's why we preach the gospel. That by this increasing capacity to believe and hold the grace of God, I feel so generous. I want to share. I want to give because I feel rich because this message is making me feel rich in the presence of God. And that's what the message does. One last thing to show you. Look at verse 12. Did the king believe what he was told? Verse 12, what does he say when he wakes up in the middle of the night? He said to his ser servants, nah, 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 nah. He says, listen, let me tell you what's really going on here. The Syrians have done for us. They know we're hungry. You see what they've done? They've gone out of their camp to hide themselves in the field. And as soon as we come out of the city, they're going to catch us and get into the city. Can you hear what he's saying? It's too good to be true. And see, that's the danger. When you've been living on a besieged mindset for years, when you've been living as if God has never helped you, when you've been living almost like waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a better day that never seems to come, if you're not careful, you'll have such unbelief in your life that when you hear this message, you'll say, it can't be true. It can't be true. It's some sort of trap. Folks, this is called the good news. It's true. Right out there. We can tell this world right out there. We think that the enemy rules this world and that he rules this city and that this is his territory. No, this is the territory of God. God has won this. He has paid for the people in this city. He has paid for them with his blood. He has bought and paid for them. You know the most amazing thing that happens when you begin to see the revelation of God, the way God sees people, the way God sees us, when we begin to see God's eyes, with God's eyes, this world, we begin to see what God sees as treasure. Do you know what God sees as treasure? Souls. Men and women. See, that's a beautiful picture. The lepers walked out and the whole field was full of treasure. And when you begin to see people as God's treasure, that they are the most priceless thing in all of eternity, because the most priceless thing in all of eternity was given from the blood of Jesus, when we go out that door, we just see a field of treasure. That's what God sees. And so we go from family to family. It's like going in from tent to tent. And we're helping ourselves 
to that we're saying, come on, let's gather up these people. Let's gather up this treasure. Let's gather up this harvest. We have the privilege of gathering up this treasure for God. Isn't that beautiful? That, you know, he gives us that privilege. He says, bring them in. Bring them in. Go and proclaim to them that the victory has been won, that they may rise up, that they may come in too and share, because there's more than enough for everybody. There's more than enough for everybody. Isn't that wonderful? And that's the revelation of the fatherhood of God. It brings such a richness into the church that we can't see ourselves the same way. And as our eyes are opened, we can't see the world the same way. And when we look, we don't see defeat. We see victory. And we see the spoils of victory. Those lepers never won that battle. They didn't do one thing. And yet they picked up the spoils of somebody else's victory. Folk, we have picked up the, the spoils of somebody else's victory. Jesus Christ has won the greatest victory for us. We can call God our Father. And he says, will you help yourself? Help yourself. Please help yourself to the grace of God. Because when you get so full of it, you're going to start at some point, you're going to stop grasping, and you're going to start going with that message. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray together. Bless you, Father. Oh, Lord, we thank you this morning for an eye-opening experience. We thank you, Lord. We proclaim it. You have laid out before us. You have opened the windows of heaven. And in one day, you have brought heaven to earth. That day, Lord. And, Lord, the world has not understood it. But it's all over bar the shouting. Now, Lord, we know there's a lot of shouting going on out there because religion says, shout to God, shout louder, maybe he'll hear you. But, Lord, we're here this morning because there was one shout given, a shout from the cross. You shouted, it is finished. That's our victory shout. And so we allow that shout to go out through our lives. We live as people who already have everything we need, even though it may appear not to have manifested yet. Yet we stand in that truth. And we know, Lord, that as we're standing in that light, other people will see us standing in the light. And through that beautiful window of our lives will shine the light of your victory, the light of what you have declared people to be, the light of what you have done for people. Thank you, Lord, that those kings of separation, sin and death, were defeated. The battlefield is now yours. The spoils of the victory are waiting to be picked up. And they are the men and women of this city and this nation. And we are here for such a time as that. And Lord, as we go from tent to tent, as we continue to help ourselves to this wonderful revelation, Lord, let it be a growing excitement within us that we just can't shut up anymore about this message. We don't go to tell them because of sense, sense of guilt or that we're going to be punished if we don't tell them. We tell them because we can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves, Lord. Now, Father, I just thank you that even... Your gospel is so powerful that even the proclamation of this truth is causing faith to arise in our hearts. So we thank you that every need is met in this place today. And we declare, Lord, that everything that we need, we already have. And so we are free to live in the day, the acceptable day of the Lord, the day of victory today. We declare this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.